New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Over the years, Mark Nepo has written about awakening, risk, courage, listening, and grace. He says he writes in order to grow. Each of us have our own unique ways to keep us on the path of our spiritual growth. If we allow the path of our seeking some room, if we don't hold the reins of our life too tightly, we'll be drawn to what we need in order to live a more awakened and enlivened life. This is the subject of today's conversation with our guest, Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo is a poet and philosopher who over three decades has been teaching in the fields of poetry and spirituality. As a cancer survivor, Mark remains committed to the usefulness of daily inner life. He devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. He's the author of 17 books, including Reduced to Joy, 7,000 Ways to Listen, Staying Close to What is Sacred, and The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. He also has many audio learning courses available, including Staying Awake and Holding Nothing Back. Join us for the next hour as we explore crafting the life of the soul through engaging with life with our guest, Mark Nepo. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. It's, so. it's so great to have you and to be sitting with you once more, Mark. Um, first of all, I want to say this newest book, I, I, I want to tell our listeners, I mean, I, I go through the books before I and prepare for an interview, as, as many of you know. And, but this one, I, I, I felt so rushed, even though I spent days with it. <laughs> I felt rushed. I felt um, that it is a kind of book, and you know I don't say this very often, but this is a kind of book or would I say conversation more than a book that I could spend years with. Oh, and thank I, you. I intend to spend years with it. Thank you so much. Oh, for, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm very touched. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it was my honor and privilege to, to have this in my life now. Yes. So I'd like to say, you know, in understanding what truly sustains us, 
we we think of our job or we think of getting money or we think of even our health or the food on our table. And even though these are very important in in our lives, what would you say that we're here for, that our soul's purpose that that is beyond just this yeah. maintenance? Yeah, well, I think I think that, you know, our career is awakening the soul. Where that happens is our occupation. And where that happens changes because we are dynamic, changing human beings, being spirits and bodies and time on earth. We never stay the same. And I think, uh, you know, over time, my experience, of course, no one knows. Let's first say that we're just comparing notes. I don't have any answers. And uh, we're all just making guesses. But, you know, one of my guesses through all this time, my time on earth, is that the soul wants nothing more than for us to be as alive as possible. Just the way, you know, of the purpose of a fire is to burst into flame and give off light and heat. Well, and let's, let's even take that further. Let's look at the sun. The sun, when it is fully itself, which it always is, it doesn't have anything mitigating on that. The sun emanates light and warmth in every direction, holding nothing back without preference. I believe that our soul is our inner sun. And every one of us is born emanating light and warmth in every direction when we hold nothing back without preference. Now, this doesn't mean because we do live, as you mentioned, we live in the world of circumstance. We live in a surface world of events where we have to make choices and problem solve. But that light within us continues to shine and emanate in all directions without preference. And this is part of the challenge of living the one life we're given. Because very often, I find, and in my own life, I know these things because I do them all the time. Just because we have knowledge doesn't mean we're exempt <laughs> from stumbling through this incarnation, you know. So I know a lot about these things because I violate them all the time. So, but, you know, I may be in a friendship with you and maybe um, something happens and I feel hurt. And so I'm not sure if I how I continue to trust you. Okay? That happens. And that happens all the time. Now, often we can move through that. So I have to make choices in the relational world, choices in the surface world. How do I discern what's trustworthy? How do I regain trust? How do I restore trust? But often in protecting myself earlier in life, what I've mistakenly done is shut off that light as if that will protect me. I have muffled that light, whereas the only way through pain and distrust and hurt and betrayal and the thousand things, cuts and nicks we go through being alive is to never stop having the soul and the heart, like the sun, emanate its aliveness in all directions without preference. That's beautiful. And I, I'm thinking it, it's like uh, you alluded to something. It's like this journey that we're on. And 
in this culture, we're we're taught that um, you know to problem solve and to 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 arrive at something. And I think in the conversation in what you've written in all of these vignettes in this new book, um, The One Life We're Given, you talk about how it's the journey, it's it's not the arrival. And sometimes that's troubling to us because we want to kind of be there. We want to be enlightened well, and, and arrive, mm. and, and now we know. <laughs> right. Well, I think one of the things that, that we we find out, and, you know, Adyashanti, who's a wonderful contemporary teacher, I love this line Adya has uh, in one of his books that says, you know, eventually, if we're lucky, I'm paraphrasing, the spiritual journey will exhaust the seeker so <laughs> so that we can find that everything is right where we are. And so, you know, I, I personally, and again, I can only speak from my own experience, but, you know, I don't believe in an, in an arrived state of enlightenment. I believe that this amazing, messy, and magnificent incarnation of being human is the state of carrying a light within. And just as, you know, as I'm talking to you, my hands are expanding and contracting. I'm inhaling and exhaling. My eyes are blinking and the heart and mind open and close continually. So, you know, we're awake and then we fall asleep and we're sensitive and then we're numb and we're safe and then we're afraid. So the spiritual journey is one of return, of constant return, because we will get lost and we will fall down and then we have to get up and we will you know, be sensitive and then we'll be numb. And today I'll save you and tomorrow I'll hurt you. And so it's the humble journey of discovering our own practice of return. And I, you know, so I feel like there's really nowhere to go. But this brings me to the other thing you, you mentioned that, you know, it upsets us not to think that there's nowhere to arrive. Or, And I think that I, I'm starting to understand this. I'm just turned 65, I'm starting to understand after many years, some, the dynamic or the, the spiritual physics, if you will, of, of having dreams and goals and ambitions. And I think we're taught at an early age to hold onto them too tightly. They are in fact not end points, but kindling for the fire of our aliveness. We have, we need we are a mix of being and becoming. There's nothing wrong with becoming, but it's like having two legs to walk. We need to be and become, or having two eyes to see. With only one eye, there's no depth. There's no depth perception. So we do need both, but I feel like, you know, we, we learn what brings us alive, and then someone tells us, oh, you seem to, you seem to come alive when you put your hands in the earth. Mm -hmm. You should become a gardener. Right. You know, it reminds me of a story that you have in the book, and this is a bicyclist. Great. Let me share that quickly here. So there is a, a cyclist who's training very hard for, for a, a, a race that is like the Tour de France, very demanding and, and serious and professional. He, you know, he has all the equipment. He's shaved the hair off his body to lower resistance when he's riding quickly into the wind. And so the day of the race comes, he's trained for months, and it's out in the country, and off they go. And sure enough, he's ahead. 
And in fact, he's so far ahead at the first, after the first mile or so, that they're coming over a hill and briefly, you can't see the other cyclists. That's how far ahead he is. And as he's coming down to the bottom of the hill, just as he's coming to the bottom of the hill, a great blue heron with its wings fully spread sweeps over his handlebars and it stuns him. It stops him. He literally stops and straddles his bike because the heron opened something he was chasing. And the other cyclists are catching up. And now we move years forward. And he's standing on his back porch looking out toward the sunset. And once in a while, if you ask him, he might, when you say to him, what cost you the race? Once in a while, he might say, I didn't lose the race. I left it. And so at the heart of this story, because, you know, someone very practical could say, well, that's a very poetic story. That's and very nice. And he was ambitious to— He, he was used, ambitious. He, he uses ambition to train himself. Right. And you know what? He lost the race. He did lose the race. But I hold it differently because I think he trained to meet the heron. And if you told him he was training to meet a heron, he wouldn't have trained. And so many of our goals and dreams and ambitions— are valuable as stepping stones to a mystery yet to unfold, yet to unfold for us. And so often when we work toward our dreams, often our dreams don't come true, but by giving our all to them, sometimes we come true. Ah. And that's more important. I'm here with Mark Nepo. He's the author of The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. And if you want, want to know more about his work, you can go to his website. He has so many wonderful things on his website, Mark Nepo, N-E-P-O, marknepo.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Mark Nepo. He's the author of The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. And Mark, yeah, I would I would like to, for you to share a little bit about what you learned from your father. Your father, mm. uh, he was a woodworker and yeah. also he was a sailor. He 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 had a sailboat and yeah. you would sail with him. So talk about some some of the gifts that you got from your father. Well, you know, my father died about three years ago at 93, and um, 
He was a, a great creative force, and he was a very um, gifted man with his hands. He was a master woodworker, as you you said, and um, and he loved the sea. So he built a thirty foot catch that I spent a lot of time on as a as a young man, as a young boy. And it's interesting that now, after all these years, and after he's gone, you know, I am triggered to remember different things that I don't know that he was aware he was teaching and I certainly wasn't aware I was learning. But now I understand in the context of my life now. And, and my father wouldn't, my father was very intelligent and he read a lot, but he was a very literal man. He, he read a lot of history and nonfiction. And of course he gets a mystical poet for a son. <laughs> and so, you know, we never quite spoke the same language, but I'm realizing after all these years and that, uh, that I work an awful lot like him. You know, he had a, a, a workshop in his basement. He taught at Brooklyn Tech High School in New York City. And then at night and on the weekends, he would, he would just be down there just so happy to be creating and creating and building things. But he had an, an L bench in the basement and there were five or six vices all along and each one had a different project in it. So he might glue one piece and let it set and then go here and plane another and then go over here and, and glue, you know, glue something else together or, or piece something. And so he was always working. And, you know, as a little boy, I would just watch him, like sit on the stairs, basement stairs, and watch him. And it's all these years later that I realized that's how I work on books. Mm. I've always worked on more than one book at the same time. And they kind of cross-pollinate, and I, I go with one, and I might work on one for a few weeks, and then it'll lead me over to this one, and then it'll lead me to research, or then it'll lead me here. And then usually at one point, a book like this one will have enough of aliveness in it that it will demand that I spend my time with it until it's birthed. But that's usually how it happens. And, and it's also, you know, my father had um, a, a wood pile that was really just full of fragments. Like he never wasted any wood. So if he would cut off an excess piece and he wasn't sure it was big enough to do something with, but he wasn't sure what, he'd throw it in the pile so that when he had other projects he was working on, he might be able to take that piece and, and make use of it. And when my father died, there must have been, my brother and I looked, we looked for him in that wood bin, you know, mm, and there must yeah. have been 500 pieces of wood just, Right. And I realize now, again, after he's gone, that is also how I work because I have fragment folders. Right. So, you know, I don't really, you know, not one of the, this ties in with our other story about the cyclist because not one of the books I've written is the book I started. <laughs> Just like not he didn't one. win the race, right. but he certainly was successful. In yeah, his... not not one. And and what that means is that by following, and this pertains not just to my writing, but to the what the terrain that this book opens. By following the aliveness, I discover the wisdom that waits in my heart. And for me, it's through the process of this inquiry or this conversation, the trail of which are the words or the books. You know, um, but the way that I work, which I never would have imagined years ago, is that, you know, as a poet, I encounter and I'm always uh, encountering uh, what the Hindus call the Upa Guru. Now, the Upa Guru means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. 
Isn't that, isn't that a great That's phrase? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Upa Guru, U-P-A-G-U-R-U. And so this is another way to understand the moments, peak moments, the moments that speak to us, that come alive. So from a very early age, you know, the wind through the trees might, might be speaking to me of a pattern. And so I might jot that down or I might overhear a conversation in a cafe or see the light, you know, on a spider web on a building or who knows what. And then I don't know necessarily where they go or what they mean, but they become my teachers. So I have to work with them. And so what I'll do is I will record them, I'll write them down, and then I'll, I'll, I'll put them in this fragment folder. And then over time, when I start to work on something like this book, then I go through that fragment folder and I see, were any of those teachers waiting for now? Did any of them belong? Did they come to me then so that I could learn from them now? And then sure enough, oh, oh, the light through that spider web is just how the light of love goes through all the unseeable connections between people. Oh, oh, and what does that have to do with the one life we're given? I would never, and if I hadn't saved it, if I hadn't trusted, even though I didn't know what it meant when I first saw it, I wouldn't, and all of this tells us that what? That, that learning from life takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And in a culture, you know, I love technology. There's nothing wrong with technology. Technology is inert. But if we don't have inner values, then the characteristics of technology will be our default values, the same way that water will fill any hole. It's like gravity, not because technology is evil. So if I don't develop an inner curiosity or wonder or willingness to be patient and learn over time, then the, the instantaneous characteristic of technology will by default become how I operate in the world. Right. And I'm thinking, too, that there is a, uh, you know, when the way news comes to us, and you've written about this, that, we, you know, it's all news in 10 minutes. I mean, it's just thrown away. And you talk about how news really reports on the circumstances. But it's these conversations. It's the, the stories that we tell one another that, that really enlivens us to meaning. Yes. So, you know, news tends to cover, yes, the surface circumstance. But it's... it's story and question that reveal the meaning that's inherent in relationship. And without that meaning, life is not bearable. There, there's something I, I just loved in, in your book. It was so great, and I'm going to use it in my, my circles. And it's something you talk about, um, well, in the deep questions we ask one another, it's called idae, and and it's a that's a Portuguese word. Yes. And I love this that when we hear a story from one another, there's something else that you're suggesting we do. So th- this comes from my dear friend David, who is a doctor and a researcher, and he's working. Uh, in, in one of the leaders in global work around uh, 
eliminating worm-based diseases in in all of the world in children. But David was in in uh, Brazil and in the Portuguese language there in the indigenous people. There's a custom, this edai, edai. I think it's edai. I might have mispronounced it the first edai. And it's beautiful. There's so many of these amazing anonymous teachings that are that come down if we just take the time to look for them. So what Adai means is, and so, and in a folk way, as a way for people to be elders to each other, to be companions to each other, it's asked often in three ways. So if you come to me and you have a problem you're heartbroken or you're, you know, a flood has ruined your home or who knows what has happened to you, but you're in some difficulty. So, you know, you tell me what happened. And the first, I listen and respectfully, my first, I say, a dai. And the first a dai is the largest. It means, and so in the context of all of life, what do you think this means? Not, Oh, this is don't you know? This is insignificant. Your trouble's insignificant given all of existence. It's not no, denying no, no. it. No, it's a question. It's saying, okay, yes, you're in this problem and it's painful. What and so, what does it mean in the largest context of all of life? And then I would listen to you explore that, and then I would say a dai again, a dai, and so. And the second time it's asked, it means, okay, because Adai literally means, and from here. So it means the second time, and so from where you're standing, where is the next solid footing? From given all of what you just described, from where you're standing, where is the next piece of solid ground? And you're not necessarily meaning... Okay, well, I'm, I lost my house. I'm going to go to the bank. No. It's not that. You no, that, that's totally open for the person to reveal their own wisdom. By asking this, you are asking the person, so tell me. Tell me where you're standing is not solid. Look around you. When does land, the ground around you, become solid next? And so then you would explore that with me. And then my final adai would be, a dai, and so, what is your next step? Yeah. What is your next step? So this is a, a powerful indigenous anonymous wisdom of relationship that is really like spiritual, uh, spiritually practical. It's a beautiful thing that you can try. I, I offer an exercise in there um, to actually try this with something you're going through, and, and notice the person asking the question is not giving any advice. Right. Is not telling the person where to go or what to do, but simply helping them diagnose and discern what what you're going through. I don't want to minimize it. Let's legitimize it. It's serious. It's difficult. And what does it mean in the context of all of life? Right. I, I can see where it enlargens the whole conversation because we often are with one another and we hear something from another, and we witness one another, and that's a good thing to do. But this takes it a step further in my mind and in my experience of just, you know, understanding what you're saying. Well, it's a beautiful, you know, if you remember uh, the great sociologist Ivan Illich, 
in the 1960s. And toward the end of his life, in an interview, he was asked to speak about uh, spiritual hospitality, which he defined as helping another cross a threshold. And I love that. Yes. Because it doesn't, you're not telling the person what the threshold is. You're not telling them how to cross it. You're simply helping them. And this practice is one way to do that. Exactly. Exactly. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with teacher, poet, philosopher, Mark Nepo, and his most recent book is The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom that waits in your heart. And he has like 16 other books, so you may <laughs> want to just check them all out. And I want to remind you that I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Nepo, author of The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. And um, Mark, there, there was a theme that I felt like I could hear throughout your book, and that is that uh, we are actually in kinship with all things. We feel so individualized. We feel so even isolated in these times. And you are constantly reminding us that we actually are in kinship with, yes. with others. Yeah. And, and it's not by accident that kindness and kinship share the same root. And one of the rewards for kindness is not just that you will think well of me or that we will develop uh, a better relationship, but that kindness, the act of kindness, allows us to experience oneness. The act of kindness allows us to experience the connection with all things, which in turn empowers us, and then we're able to continue to be strong and kind further. So kindness leads to kinship. And there is a kinship between all things that we uh, understandably come in and out of being aware of because pain, worry, fear, betrayal, all the difficulties of life short circuit our full attention. And as we mentioned earlier, this is why it's important that every person develop their own practice of return because the way that pain and fear introduce themselves is by cutting our attention, by making everything about them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the miracle hasn't stopped happening. You know? I kind of think of it like we, we, we go into a cocoon uh, and the mirror is on the inside of the cocoon and all we see is ourself and our pain. Yes. And, and again, not to be harsh on ourselves because the initial introduction of pain and fear is all-encompassing. 
Yes. So I'll give you an example that, you know, I'm walking on a hike on a beautiful day like today, and I, I'm not watching where I'm going, and I really stub my toe on a boulder, you know, the kind where you think you might have broken your toe. Ooh. And, you know, when that happens, immediately all of life is, is the pain in that toe. The sun hasn't stopped shining. The view hasn't ceased to be. The miracle of life hasn't stopped. Now, over time, maybe within a half hour, it, it stops being that all-encompassing and it starts to throb. And now you have the continual choice point for all of us, okay? Because now the miracle of the day is still there. And so is the pain in the toe. Where do we put our attention not, we can't avoid, it's not as simple, you know, stoicism says, of, ignore the pain in the toe. Well, we know that doesn't work because the more you ignore what you feel, the larger it gets. But you can't drown in it either. And one of the things that I'm discovering over time through my own ailments and through the things I've been forced to work with is that letting the miracle of life back in is actually part of the medicine that right-sizes the pain, whatever it is. So you can replace the pain in the toe with anything. Heartache, loss of purpose, worry, desperation, fear, whatever it might be. How do we let the miracle of life and the kinship of all things come back in to right-size the difficulty we've been given as a human being. It cannot eliminate it. Part of the journey of being human is the friction of life. No one is exempt from it. But I believe that life has been made just difficult enough that we need each other. And this is to ensure the journey of love. And just as nature is eroded to reveal its inner beauty, we are given the friction of life, which we call suffering. I imagine that if trees and, and mountains and shores could talk, they might call the elements suffering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because they're wearing them away. Uh, yeah, right. At least a mountain. But yeah, right. we are worn to our beauty if we can hold each other up to it. And so, I, you know, it, it's really important, this, this dance, uh, this personal practice of how do we not drown in our pain and how do we not ignore our pain? And how do we, you know, often what we do, and I've done it too, is like, well, if I can just get through this pain, then I can return to the light of the day. Right. No, no, it's letting the light of the day in will help right-size the pain. You know, I also I'm thinking, all right, we stub our toe and then... Then that might be an example. We go into regret, like, "Oh, I I should have paid more attention." Oh, I said, you know, a lot of times we hold regret. And you have a wonderful um, metaphor that you use for regret that I, it just really popped for me. It's about the, the, the ringing bell. the the bell. Yeah. Give this yeah. metaphor. Well, regret, and again, this all of this requires self-compassion because we shouldn't blame ourselves. Uh, regret is a form of blaming yourself, and then you shouldn't blame yourself for having regret. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, it's about course correction. 
we all do this, and then how do we return to a, a, a place of kinship to all things for the health that it brings us? Well, regret, having regret is like ringing a bell and then trying to gather the sound of the bell in the field and put it, put it back <laughs> under, under the bell. <laughs> And it's impossible. So you're chasing, chasing, chasing. It's and it's impossible. And that. the word regret, one of the meanings is to re-greet. So, yes, it's a way to look at what we've done or not done, but all with the aim of doing it differently the next time. We, in our pain, in our self-blame, in our low self-esteem, we look at regret often as could I just go back and redo that? Oh, I wish I could redo that. Why didn't I do this better? What was I thinking? What was wrong with me? And of course, that's a pain all by itself. That self-recrimination is a terrible pain that keeps us from regaining our kinship with the oneness of things. And the whole reason to feel that kinship, it's like when a surfer uh, catches a wave. Well, for the time that they're riding that wave, the surfer and the wave are one. And no wave lasts forever. <laughs> but the surfer paddles and expresses effort to catch the wave. And then when the wave ends, they paddle and go back either to catch another wave or back to shore. This is the relationship which this book really explores is the relationship between effort and grace. I was just going to say that sounds like what you describe as grace. Yeah. That that and you can't uh, you can't win grace or or make it happen. No, no. And grace, you know, very simply, I would define grace as um, beyond religious terms. Underneath religious terms, it's grace is what allows a bird to glide. Grace is the current that carries a fish after it works so hard to find the current. And in human beings, grace is when all of our effort leads us until the, the as the Taoists say, the way, the unseeable current of life carries us. And great love and great suffering, when we give ourselves over, when we go back to our, our earlier conversation and we don't shut down, the sun of our soul, the sun of our heart, and we let it emanate in all directions with light and warmth, with no preference, then we have our best chance, like that fish, of catching the wave, of being carried by the current. And all the spiritual traditions speak about health as the alignment of the part or the person with the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And dis-ease is when we are out of alignment. I love that, that thought of the fish finding the current. You know, we're like we swim against the current and we're just trying to control our lives. And, and then that moment, I just, when I read that, I go, oh, right. You surrender and you are carried by the current. And that's the grace you're talking and that's about. And that's the grace. And now, it, but it requires a mix of effort. I think effort readies us for grace. I yes. would also suggest that effort 
is revelation in slow motion. <laughs> As effort is revelation in slow motion. Okay, all right. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Well, I was thinking like in, in controlling life, and, and I'm thinking now in the context of, of fear, we, we fear like, oh, the future, what might happen? And you really faced one of those big fears mm. when you were working in a place for 16 years and then suddenly boom like that you were out and some other people were out with you but it just like yeah so this this was you know from from the time when i went through my cancer experience almost died in my 30s you know this was and i was 59 so many years later i experienced uh, another constellation of difficulty that was probably the greatest since then and and it was a great teacher as difficult as it was because i was laid off fired a job was gone that i had a community that i had been a part of for 16 years and i was sick at the time i had uh, because of the chemo i had many years ago a stomach flu didn't didn't my stomach didn't recover from a severe stomach flu and so my stomach became like a backed up sink i couldn't eat very much and it was unclear it took seven months to recover and it might not have there are people who unbelievably live with this these poor people as a chronic condition so so you know once i lost the job i had a fear of the future because i wasn't even sure if i would still have health insurance let alone be able i was sick i couldn't wasn't able to do what i do the the condition i had physically people who have that condition develop a fear of eating because you don't know what's going to cause pain one bite four bites two bites it changes every day so there's a fear of the present and at the same time as this happened, I, my father had turned 90 and I was going to see him for the first time in 15 years. And as much as I wanted to see him, I had a fear of the past. I didn't know what going back into that, that tangle of where I grew up, what it would do to my personality, to my identity, to my personhood. So I was really entangled in overlaying fears and it was pretty clear I ran out of tenses. Uh, There we were, past, present, future. (laughs) And so very much, as we were talking about a dai, so very much there I was, not through any wisdom on my part. I didn't have anybody asking me a dai at the time. But there was nowhere to go except to stand exactly where I was. So I want you to go more in detail and with that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mark Nepo. He's the author of The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Nepo. He's poet, philosopher, and teacher and author of The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. And we're talking about fear, fear of the present, fear of the past, fear of the future. Uh, so, what's helpful is stillness. Well, here. and again, you know, I was exhausted to it. I, I didn't choose it out of wisdom or out of courage or, you know, I was in a situation, as I mentioned, where I was afraid of the past. I was afraid of uh, going to see my father after so much time. I was afraid of the present because I had a stomach condition that was painful to eat. And I had lost my job, so I was afraid of the future. I didn't even know if we'd have health insurance. And so there was nowhere to turn. There was nowhere to run. Sometimes when we're afraid of one, we run to the next. You know, if we're afraid of the past, we run to the future. You know, but here I was, and there was nowhere to go except where I was. And so, exhausted and afraid, I had to stand on the one solid inch that was below me with nowhere to go except to wait until that inch grew to two solid inches, until it grew to three, until I could find a new way forward, having not moved at all. And so the stillness, which I would translate as accepting the truth of things as they are, when we're powerless, the greatest power we have is to admit what is. Is to admit what is. And from there, we're born anew. And from there, I could discover the kinship of all things again. It didn't remove my pain. It didn't remove that I had to face and go be with my father, but trust that who I had become through all these years would survive that, that coming together. And it didn't remove the uncertainty about the future without a job, but it put all of these things in a different context because I could now view them from the authority of my being, which was not my authority, but it was the authority that came from the authority of all being. So if you imagine a mountain, you see a mountain, you know, from a distance, it's hard to tell where the mountain, the base of the mountain, where the mountain stops and the earth begins. You can't tell. Well, it's the same thing with every soul. Every soul is like a mountain, and when you look, go into it deeply, you can't tell where the individual soul stops and the ground of all souls begins. And so when we talk about authority of being, it's when I can be completely who I am, I touch into the authority of all being, the way a mountain touches into the earth. And then I am on solid ground. And then I am in kinship with all being. So let me share a very poignant and powerful story from the end of my father's life. You know, I was visiting my father, and he was in the hospital. And like many people, I wound up unexpectedly feeding my father. He was in the hospital bed, and he had several strokes and was very weak, and I was feeding him applesauce. And it was beautiful, and it was heartbreaking, and it was everything. And I became so completely present and devoted that all of life was getting that spoon into his mouth so it wouldn't disturb or hit his teeth or disturb his breathing. And we just did this over and over together, and he reached a little, and I would bring the spoon out. And to my surprise, 
underneath all that feeling, all that poignancy, all that pain and sadness and beauty and sweetness, all of a sudden, it, we were in a moment of wonder. We were in a moment of wonder. So the way a drop of rain, when it hits the lake, ripples in all directions, but where the drop hits, it clears a little teeny dot of clarity. My father and I, by facing what was ours to face, by feeding him, by giving myself over and not running and feeling it to the depth of all I had to feel, we were that dot of clarity. And it was a moment of wonder. And to my surprise, when I could inhabit what was mine as deeply as possible to the bottom of my personality, I suddenly went into the well of all personality. And now I was in the moment of every child that ever fed a dying parent, and I wasn't alone. We were all through time, through the mystery of time and timelessness, through feeling what was mine to feel. Completely, I discovered where resilience lives. And resilience, I've come to understand through that, is where feeling what is mine to feel to the depth of all that I have, where it meets all of humanity, that's where resilience releases itself. I'm thinking after, I think it was after he died, um, there was this kind of odd moment that, that, and many of us have gone through this when the death of our parent or loved one, um, that you were at the same time at getting a, a, an award for a book. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just thinking of like how this presence that you're talking about and the absence you know, they live side by side, the joy and the sorrow. I mean, you're going on with your life and you're receiving this award and your father is dying and and the man across the way in the restaurant is homeless and he's mm-hmm. going through the garbage bin very carefully yeah, like some yeah. Rembrandt painting. <laughs> I'm, I'm repeating some of the words yes. in your book here. Yeah. So it, 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 I, I, I'm just so moved by that, that life is such a, a... Life is an incredible tapestry. Tapestry. That is never finished, that is weaving us. We are the threads in that tapestry. And when we can open, you know, so we talked earlier that, you know, going through life, we are taught to navigate the outer world, which is a wonderful skill. We need to sort and choose and prioritize and problem solve. That's helpful. It's helpful to know that we took the right turns to get here so we could meet you to do this interview, you know. But, but in the things that matter... What life has taught me is that I need to open my heart and absorb and integrate. And then the heart releases its own logic. Then the heart releases its own logic. And that we are constantly asked to let everything in and not choose between it or make logical sense of it, but to let it, let it reverberate until it tells us Till it becomes that teacher, that upaguru, the teacher that is next to you at this moment. 
What does it take to have it teach us? I think it takes being open and without conclusion. And this ah. is very important for the times we're in because we live in a, in a time that where there is a worldwide epidemic of fundamentalism. And it's not, and not just in religious traditions. I believe, uh, which I talked about in my last book, that there, uh, that there is what we can call a personal fundamentalism, where we allow what is familiar to have primacy over everything else we encounter because we think it's safe. And so we push away anything that's different when in fact we need everything that is not us to be whole. Plato said, we are born whole, W-H-O-L-E, but we need each other to be complete. But we need each other to be complete. And, you know, in the Jewish tradition, God is known as an indwelling presence, which is not revealed except through relationship. Relationship. So I need... In conversation. So paradoxically, I need to become a clear vessel, which means I need to become who I am, individuate, become solid, become my own person, not so I can just stay contained, so that I can open up to everything that is not me. And so there's a teacher in there somewhere. Yes. Yes, the teacher is that we have to become who we are so we can lose who we are. <laughs> oh, it's so paradoxical. We need to become who we are so we can lose who we are. Not lose who we are as in terms of vanish, but lose who we are so that we can let everything in. I have a, a friend who uh, loves jazz, loves jazz, cries at jazz. Cry. And I, in fact, I sit with him and listen to jazz so that I can watch him listen to jazz <laughs> because it's so moving to watch him cry when he uh, hears Miles Davis or John uh, Coltrane. Or, and so we were talking, and he said, you know, sometimes it scares me because he wouldn't, while he loves jazz, we wouldn't have a conversation quite like this. You know, it's not the way he talks. So, uh, but he said, you know, um, sometimes it scares me because when I listen to jazz, I get so, so swept up in, my, in it that I'm afraid when I come back, I won't be the same. And I took his hand and I said, but isn't that the point? <sighs> isn't that the point to develop a self that is an instrument that is so attuned that you can hear jazz so that you can feel it so deeply, so that it will change you. So you're very porous to so it. So the idea is to have a solid foundation, but porous boundaries. Oh, Mark, I want to thank you so much. We could just go on and on. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for being oh, with us welcome. today. It's a joy. I've been speaking with Mark Nepo, poet, philosopher, and spiritual teacher. He uh, is the author of his newest book, The One Life We're Given, Finding the Wisdom That Waits in Your Heart. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, marknepo.com, Nepo, N-E-P-O. MarkNepo.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3590. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.